This is Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, a podcast series designed to help medical students and residents strategically navigate the process of applying for residency in emergency medicine or to EM-sponsored fellowship programs. I'm your host, Mike Chizani from Stanford University. Let's get started. Welcome to Emergency Medicine Match Advice, a podcast sponsored by your friends at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And it's editor-in-chief now headlining her own show at Caesars Palace while the Las Vegas Strip is closed, Dr. Michelle Lynn from UCSF. Hello, Michelle. Woohoo! Super excited to be on the Strip. Well, I mean, this is your chance. This is your chance. I've been waiting. Michelle, we have a very special episode, a bit of a somber episode compared to uh, our usual shenanigans on EM Match Advice. This one's entitled COVID-19 and the 2020 to 2021 interview season. And to offer their sage advice during this very challenging time for our students, we have three outstanding program directors. Dr. Charles Corey from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Melissa Platt from the University of Louisville. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Did I say that correctly, Louisville? I think I did. Louisville. All right. And Dr. Paul D. Koenig from Dartmouth University. Hi, Paul. Hi. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So, all right. Sadly, in just a few short weeks, coronavirus changed everything. Just yesterday, the provost of Stanford University, Persis Strell, offered this message that I think sums up our collective American experience. She said, I want to acknowledge the magnitude of change that we are all living with right now. The scale of disruption created by the COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented in most of our lifetimes. All of us are trying to work in new ways while dealing with interruptions to our plans and projects. Many of our undergraduate students have had to move on short notice. People across our community are caring for children at home or worrying about the health of loved ones. I deeply appreciate the grace, self-sacrifice, and thoughtfulness for the well-being of others that I've seen across our community in this time of such profound challenge. Now, I offer her sage wisdom in this quote as the intro to our discussion today. We are in unchartered territory, people, and it is critical that we support one another, and right now, most especially, our students. For instance, last week, I hosted a Zoom call with nine very stressed out rising senior medical students at Stanford University who are rightly stressed out and very concerned about the topics that we're going to cover in today's podcast, away rotations, slows, the timely completion of required clerkships, USMLE Step 2. It all comes down to us right now, the faculty leaders who run our clerkship and residency programs in emergency medicine. We need consensus on these issues, and we need to communicate that consensus quickly to our students so they can make necessary adjustments to their previous plans. And that's the point of today's very special episode of EM Match Advice. So let's dive in with our first panelist, Dr. Khoury from the University of Alabama. I'm interested in your take on the big picture issues right now. What concerns do you have for next year? You know, this has been a very tough time for not just for applicants, but also for programs. So from a very selfish standpoint, I think we're all going through the same thing. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing because this is not a regional problem. It's not a local one, but we're all on the same page as a nation. And I think we can take some comfort in knowing that every program is in the same boat, every student's in the same boat, every program director's in the same boat. And that's kind of where we are right now. And that's what's going to make this conversation pretty interesting, I think. So what are the big picture issues? Can you give me some examples of what maybe we need to solve as a specialty right now? 
Yeah, um, from an application standpoint, it's going to be tough to evaluate and rank students in the ways that we've done in the past. So emergency medicine has been on the forefront of evaluations when it comes to standardized letters of evaluations or slows. And uh, I think we've done a really good job of that over the past few years to help take some of the subjective out of it and add a little more objective. And this is going to be one of those issues that we're going to have to get through as a group to figure out what we're going to do if students can't rotate at other places, if they can't get the same slows that they used to get, even if they can't take step two, potentially, if some of these testing centers are closed. I'm curious on your little thoughts on each of those issues. So so let's perhaps talk about slows. I think we have been criticizing ourselves in the specialty over the last several years, and certainly bringing this up over and over again on EMH advice, that we've made for an untenable environment uh, for students as they search for away rotations. They have to struggle with VSAS. The schedules never line up with their own schedules. They're spending thousands of dollars going around the country um, living in rented apartments so that they can get these precious slows. And now we're going to change the rules by saying, well, hey, you can't come rotate at my institution. There's nowhere to get these slows. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think the first thing that we're going to have to do as a collective is decide that it's okay to not have two or three slows. It's okay that a student's application may be a little later than usual. I know I can't speak for other PDs, but at UAB, we've made the decision to allow applications from students who may only have their home slow, or if they don't have a rotation at their home institution, maybe to allow a student with no slows and just with letters of recommendation, as well as strong personal statement, strong CV. So I think the first step that we're going to all have to commit to as a group is being okay with having students who do not rotate at other institutions, because it's looking more and more like we're probably not going to get to have our away rotation experience the way we've done in previous years. You're talking about taking students without a slow or perhaps on a different timeline. What will you consider a complete application this season? to your residency program? And and what is the deadline for that? When are you going to say, you know, applications really should be submitted by X date? Yeah, I think we have created a complicated situation in emergency medicine before all of this because we wanted applications earlier and earlier. And people are offering interviews in October, uh, even for the end of October or early November. So we've kind of worked ourselves into a corner a little bit. But what we're going to do is, as of now, and this is us talking through things uh, without making formal decisions yet, We're going to wait a little longer to open up ERAS, probably until at least the beginning of October. The the applications we're looking at, it's going to be the the CV and the personal statement and all those things. But I'd still want to see three letters of recommendation, but not necessarily slows. So this will probably be the first time in our program's history that you would not require two slows to have your application looked at. And that's a commitment that I think we need to start making because we're not able to host students for visiting rotations, then it's really not fair to ask students to come with an application that that shows that they've been visiting other places. It it doesn't really make sense. And do you have any advice for your own students? If you're going to be speaking to a Zoom call of students at UAB, what are you telling them right now as advice? Yeah, right now, what I'm telling them is you should still be going through VSAS. You should still be applying for OA rotations hopefully apply for ones in August or even September because June and July are pretty unlikely and do the best you can with what you've got. That's kind of been our motto over here with, with everything, whether it's operations or education, you just do the best you can with what you've got and you operate as if things haven't changed yet. 
Uh, and if, if that doesn't work out, if the way rotations don't work out, right now what we're looking at is finding ways to get these students more letters, even from our own department, because they work with 10, 15 faculty members during the rotation here. And I think we can be more creative in terms of how we evaluate them and how we give them letters of evaluation. All right, thanks. I'm really interested in all the panelists and Michelle also commenting on what your individual uh, universities are thinking about away rotations. I'll tell you, I, I'm advising the Stanford students to not do them. I recognize that I don't have some great power over them. Many of them are going to choose to do them anyway. I worry about the unnecessary pressure at the end of the season. And frankly, I worry about their health. You know, is it is it worth it to go somewhere else in an uncertain time, even later in the summer when we know this disease is still going to be around? Are we going to have the adequate protections when we're not watching our own kids? And, and I worry about that just so they can get a letter. Um, so let's get to our next panelist, Dr. Platt from the University of Louisville. I think we've got some early guidance from our major organizations. Could you tell us a little bit about what some of the, the group's policies and guidelines have been in the last week or two? Of course. There have been several organizations that are actually trying to give us guidance as a group so as going forward. And it is a Herculean task, especially with the changing times. We really don't know what is going on from week to week. And they are just trying to lay a path that is really unknown right now. So CORD has put out a consensus statement regarding the slows and away rotations. CORD really does recognize that away rotations may not be available for most people and that the slow, while it used to be seen as the pinnacle of the letters of recommendation, that the program may have to change the views of the slow and take these non-slow letters of recommendation with just as much weight as the slows given the current situation. So they're really encouraging programs to be flexible with their slow requirements. You know, one slow or maybe even less may be what we have to deal with. And we shouldn't penalize the students if they can't get the number of slows that are required for that program. And then really to give the weight to alternatives uh, for the non-slow letters, uh, that the, the non-slow letter may be just as good this interview season as a slow Using the clear languages to reflect the loss of the opportunities. And this will be pivotal for the, the medical schools when they're writing their student performance evaluations, how COVID had impacted their institution, because it's going to be different for everybody across the nation. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then they really are looking at, from a CORD standpoint, that you're right, people or students may not be able to do the away rotations, and you really can't expect those that have students that have a program associated with their institution to be doing two and three away rotations when there are some orphan students that don't have a program associated with them and they have to do an away rotation in order to sort of get that emergency medicine experience from a residency program that's not attached to them. And then we haven't even sort of touched on the international student trying to get into an emergency medicine residency program here in the States. So CORD is on it. They did a consensus statement pretty early on. The match from the National Residency Matching Program just put out something on April 1st under frequently asked questions. Um, so they are looking at it. And the double AMC has also put out some video calls about how to even out the playing field for these students. So the organizations seem to be on it, but they have just as many unanswered questions as we do on an individual program level. Well, maybe we'll put some of these policies and, and links to the videos in the show notes on uh, the Alien website. 
I'm curious what you would consider a good non-slow. I have my own opinions as to who should be writing narrative letters. We're going to call them narratives instead of non-slows. If it's not an emergency physician, who should be the author? And, you know, perhaps our faculty need to speak with those letter writers to give them guidance as to what to say, other than this student is wonderful and I have nothing specific to say about them because I'm using a canned letter that I write for every student, right? Like we have to guide perhaps our colleagues in the other departments to offer specifics. Do you have any thoughts on that? I completely agree with you. They do need guidance. You know, obviously an emergency physician knows what it takes to be an emergency physician. So even if you're not attached to a residency program, emergency physicians have great insight into the prospective students. But even if there is a non-emergency physician that that student has known uh, and maybe been a mentor for throughout the years of their medical school education, they would be a great person to get a, a letter from, a letter of recommendation. We really just are looking for uh, physicians that know the student and the qualities that that student possesses that would make them a good emergency physician. Um, maybe you could share a little bit of insider information from uh, Louisville. What are you going to do differently this year as a residency program director? And again, just like with Dr. Corey, what advice are you giving to your own students at Louisville? For mine, so far we are planning to take away rotators, but we do not start taking them until August. So it's too soon to tell right now, given this state of affairs, whether there'll be travel bans. But really, we start taking our away rotators um, at the end of July, beginning of August, and it really could be a whole different playing field. So we are actually looking at places that don't have a residency program attached to it. If those students are um, applying through our VSAS to give them special weight to, to see if we can't fold them into in a way rotation to help them get the letters because they do not have a program um, associated with their medical school. If we can take away students for an away rotation, we will do everything in our power to help them out going forward. But we tend to do it a little bit later than most people do starting their away rotations. We don't really start until the end of July or August. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. That might help a lot of students to know that the timeline just helps them a bit. What about advice for your own students? Are you telling your students to do away rotations or not? We are still encouraging them to apply through VSAS for away rotations. And sort of circling back for you, this is a huge leap of faith for our fourth year students. We don't have a mandatory emergency medicine rotation. Ours is an elective. Um, so they are taking a leap of faith because it costs money to apply for these through VSAS for the away rotations, but we're pretty upfront and transparent with them that, that they may not be able to do an away rotation. We are actually asking them to limit to do an one away rotation because they do have a their home institution and we will do everything to get them to do their home institution. So we're going to ask them to limit their away rotations and to not be surprised if the rules change or if, if an institution does not offer away rotators during the fall time. It's, it really does fall back onto each institution what the parameters are for their away rotators. Hey, Mike, it's interesting. You know, on our previous episodes, we always keep talking about, gosh, well, that you don't need to do three away rotations. I didn't realize it would take a pandemic to make this happen. But, you know, <laughs> crisis opportunity, I think this is the right direction to go in general. Well, you know, so many societal changes are perhaps a bit positive, right, during an otherwise really challenging and unprecedented time. And I think you're right. There's silver linings that I see in my own home. I'm cooking dinner with my 11-year-old every evening, which 
you know, at the end of a long day, we would go out and get unhealthy restaurant food constantly. I mean, there's there's some positive things I bet families are experiencing all over the country. And I think in this case, you're entirely right. We've made, I always call it untenable. We've made this untenable set of circumstances for students that just make the process unnecessarily difficult. And you're right, this might be the the pandemic may cause a little silver lining. And I just hope our specialty will stick with it year over year. I think this is the opportunity to, to redirect a bit. And I'm so glad Dr. Platt brought up the issue of cost for VSAS when our students may end up spending money and perhaps not getting it refunded. I know Stanford require, we don't participate in VSAS, you have to pay for an application fee to, to come here and, and that's challenging. I also think there's a, a big issue, Michelle, with students who are planning for these away rotations, they get canceled at the last minute and then can the schools pivot enough to find them clinical rotations in lieu of what they plan to do away? Obviously not in, in emergency medicine if they've already done their home rotation, but gosh, I, I mean, it's just tough, right, for these yeah. students to find something else to do at the last minute. Yeah. Well, I love that this kind of evens the playing ground for everybody, but it's a double-edged sword, right? Because now then how does that stellar, stellar student who would normally identify through a slow or a rotation, how do they stand out? And I'm hoping maybe the panelists can address this as we keep talking. Yeah, so let's um, let's go to our final panelist, Dr. DeKoenig. What do you have for us in terms of other examples? I know we've sort of talked about the instances at uh, UAB and Louisville, and we've talked about how CORD and, and other organizations and our MP are putting out some statements. But I think the more examples the students can have, I think the easier they may be able to uh, plan. I don't know that it makes for an easy season, but it makes planning a little bit easier. Well, you know, Mike, I think to kind of capitalize on something you've already said, I think we have an opportunity as a specialty to really shine. And I tend to be a glass half full or mostly full sort of guy. And I think this COVID generation that we're all kind of birthing is going to have an amazing story to tell. And I think we have an opportunity to really shine. And I, I think we will just because that's what the specialty does. One thing that hasn't been mentioned that's one of my favorite aspects of an application, because it can be so telling for me, is the personal statement. And I feel that a lot of students in programs, I don't know where they're getting their advice, but I feel a lot of students are getting the advice of don't put anything personal in your personal statement. And so it's the routine. I'm really interested in emergency medicine because I like to do things with my hand and I like to think a lot. And we all look at hundreds, if not thousands of personal statements a year. I can say I probably read thoroughly 10 of them. And I have cried reading personal statements. And those are the ones that I'm like, I have to meet this individual. And so I try and encourage our students every day of the week, and especially at this time, use the personal statement to tell a story that only you can tell. CVs are going to kind of stand up on their own. We all know that all of these students are going to have difficulties getting rotations. And, you know, I think one thing that hasn't been mentioned so far is, will students be able to rotate in their EDs at their home institutions? Like, we don't know. Our students are doing nothing right now. So that's an interesting wrinkle to think about. I would expect that, that would be possible, but it's anyone's guess what, you know, June, July is going to look like for students at their own institutions. So I would say one of the things that we have always looked at and I'm going to be excited to see is what personal statements can tell us that are really unique. And I would hope that students would take that example and run with it. Yeah, I think you're bringing up a really good point, right? So we're planning to allow clinical rotations to start up again in our period one, July one. And we're not going to take away visiting students for many months after that. So this changes our 
attention span, our ability and bandwidth to provide a rotation for our own students. You know, they were often part of a really robust 50 or 60 students that would come to Stanford every year to see our shop. And now we're going to have, you know, maybe nine, nine students total from Stanford. And how do we provide experiences for them that are a little different and, and frankly, perhaps even more robust because we don't have other students that we need to be writing slows for and doing evaluations for and finding shifts for. Those are going to be interesting things to, to describe in our own letters as we write department slows. You know, another clerkship question I have for you is around required clerkships at schools, right? So now we have perhaps March, April, May, June being canceled entirely at some schools. Others are trying to deliver what were traditionally core clerkships via Zoom or virtual learning. This is going to impact many students' ability to just finish out the required rotations, and those are going to be coming late summer, fall. How are you going to suss all that out? What's the impact on a complete application in this next season? Well, I may be maybe too optimistic, but I would like to trust the system. Every student is going to be different. I think one of the things that the slows really set out to prove, and I think that they have, is that middle third and even low third applicants they are solid. Emergency medicine applicants in general, I think, are solid applicants. And I think we're going to find that the value of those mid-third and lower-third students are really quite excellent. So I want to trust the system. They're going to get the education that their school deems necessary for them to complete their medical school experience. You know, to speak to letters, I think other groups that I have traditionally found very helpful in letter writing, aside from EM, is other specialties that whether they understand implicitly what it is that we in emergency medicine do or just understand it without really realizing it, you know, the ability to to evaluate acute patients. So I like letters from critical care and surgeons. I like letters from other surgical subspecialties because I think they understand a little bit the procedural aspect. They often come through the ED and interact with us and we have mutual patients. So I find those letter writers will also be invaluable in this next season. Yeah, I agree with you. It always used to be surgery, medicine, OB for me. And I would add in critical care now as another opportunity for students to find a summer letter. And Michelle, I don't know what Dr. DeConi keeps talking about this optimism thing. I've never, I don't know what that is. Um, talked about I, that I can stop it. I can so, stop so. if you'd like. Oh, it's really, it does not sit well with me at all. Um, <laughs> we can go back to doom and gloom. There you go. I, I, that's where I'm most comfortable. Um, can we talk a little bit about the insider information at Dartmouth? So how's your program going to handle away visiting students? And what are you giving us advice for the, the Dartmouth medical student? Well, I would um, predicate all of this by saying that the plans that I laid yesterday got changed this morning. So um, in about five minutes, this will probably be obsolete. <laughs> but we're definitely going to look at letters in an entirely different way. I think the specialty is going to have to be willing to really assess students without any slows. We're still going to need letters. We still need letters from people who can speak to their professional abilities, their clinical skills. That hasn't changed. We're going to have to, I think, do more thorough evaluations of applications earlier. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we offer invitations earlier, but I think we're going to have to typical screening tools that we may have used in the past. They're going to be out the window. So um, I think it's going to require our leadership just start looking at more applications more thoroughly earlier. We're going to take students who have no slows. I want to know in their personal statements what it is about emergency medicine that attracts them. And again, tell me a story that only you can tell. Those are things that we've kind of done in the past, but they're going to be even more important now because you know all bets are off. 
I would be interested what the other people on the panel would say, but you know, I think it's safe to assume that the COVID thing is going to affect all applicants, but not equally. And so the value of mentioning that in a personal statement, I'm not even sure yet. That could get kind of redundant over time. But we're going to look at everybody. And I don't know if we're going to have to interview more students this year. Uh, are we going to be able to interview them in person? Or are we going to have to virtually uh, interview them like over Zoom I calls know, or that's Skype? That's first to think about that. Yeah. Um, you know, I've heard some good reports from groups that are doing it currently for fellowships. And it seems to be going okay. And I guess if, as we discussed earlier, if you don't want to wear pants, that might be valuable, but it's probably to be frowned upon. Don't tell my secrets. Don't tell my secrets. Can I uh, just add something about the personal statements that I thought was really beneficial, something that you said? In previous years, I know that our general opinion has been to kind of be safe on personal statements. I know we tell a lot of students that, especially when they have these excellent applications, but I love the idea of telling a student, this is not the time to run it up the middle. Like just to, using a football analogy, there are these safe plays that we do. And this may be a case in which you want to air out the football a little bit and get us to know you through your personal statement. Be a little more emphatic in certain parts of your application that we wouldn't see otherwise because we would jump straight to letters of recommendation and board scores. You have our full attention at this point. So I think it's really important to tell us who you are through the personal statement. You'll have our full attention also if we are still on house arrest. So, um, you know, maybe this is one way in which the specialty benefits that we really unleash students to capitalize on their personal statement. I would love to see that be something that is sustained after this is all cleared. I mean, I have so many observations. First, that the panelists from Alabama had to talk about football, I think is... Absolutely. Uh, so doing it, but I had to. Yeah, well, I mean, we're taking a pause right now to acknowledge that. You know, it's also interesting, you're describing this holistic review of applications. I'm in a pass-fail school. Soon we're going to have pass-fail step one. Perhaps we're going to have a world where away rotations are gone and we're limiting letters to just our home institution and, and our single department slow. There becomes less and less parts of the, the application characteristics that distinguish one student from the next. And you raise a really good point about personal statements in COVID. I don't want to make light of either example, COVID or Katrina, but after Katrina, everyone wrote about Katrina. And not that that's necessarily a bad thing for the individual, but when you realize that everyone else in the country is writing about it as well, all of a sudden that thing that you felt was really characteristic and distinctive for you is is not. Um, so I think perhaps that's a really interesting piece of advice you just had there about what to put in your personal statement regarding this. That also speaks to what Charles was saying, like, so don't run it up the middle. Don't put it in there just to say it to kind of get your rebate on interview season. But if it is involved in a story that only you can tell, I want to know about it. But if it's just kind of window dressing, then probably not. Yeah, no, as, you're right. I think students in New York City are going to have some very, very interesting absolutely, stories. Absolutely. Tell it by the end of the summer, maybe everywhere, frankly. Michelle, you always come up with the best summative questions. And I feel like at the end of this episode, perhaps this is the least prescriptive episode we've ever had. So I really want to make sure that we have some good summary statements, some good advice for the students that they can walk away from today. What What do you got for me? Well, that's a great question. I've been struggling with this and trying to how to sum it up. I have two points I kind of want to make. One is that, you know, maybe this is a test of the emergency medicine students kind of resolve and adaptability 
Because frankly, we don't know as educators, clinicians, what's going to happen from day to day. So maybe this is a test of how adaptable they can be with the system. But the second I'm struck by is, and maybe if I can be a little bit more contradictory, is like the personal statement is is great and all. But I think if I were a student, I would still want to try to figure out how to stand out. And putting all my eggs in that basket with the personal statement worries me a little bit. If, you know, I'm just going to get a home letter, I'm going to get a pass on my step one, I'm going to get a pass on all my grades, and no one gets honors, how am I going to stand out? And and the part that I feel like has the most amount of wiggle room, and I don't know the historical legacy about this, is with the narrative letters. Why are they narrative letters, and why is there not like a, a C-slow, like COVID-slow, for all the non-EM folks, and, and really kind of give them a, a template on what exactly we want to know about the student from the emergency medicine perspective. And I don't know why it's it's been done like that, but maybe this is another opportunity where we can really lead in our specialty to reinvent how letters of recommendation can be done. Because this is really, right, the only external validation tool we have in terms of a, a student's quality. And I'm just wondering if anyone had any thoughts or insights about why that has been and whether there's been talk about it. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I, gosh, we think about how poor the slows are. We just had an episode on that a couple months ago, yeah. right? I mean, they're so raider dependent and are, you know, the raiders being trained well and do they understand the the metrics of it? I, I think it's a great idea and I so worry that out a lot of instruction, how would another author prepare those letters? And I think you get any, you have a window into that with the MSPE, right? Dean's letters at some schools are just a wash. You can't tell anything from them. Yeah. And I think at other places, they do a really nice job of, effectively what we do in EM, which is putting folks into more descriptive boxes, not necessarily rankings, but but descriptive boxes. Um, what do you think, Charles? Yeah, it's I hate answering questions with more questions, so I'm going to try to avoid that. But I think that this is an opportunity for us as programs to show the same resourcefulness, the same grit and resiliency that we ask from our applicants. And one of those things that we're going to have to do is work a little harder to ensure that we're writing better letters, that we're writing letters with more substance in them, and that we're encouraging all the people we work with to do the same. So that's where we're going to start, is meeting with faculty, explaining to them the importance of what they put into letters, being more descriptive, being more honest, and we're going to start there. I think this is a great opportunity from the bottom up for everybody just to sort of step up. It is an opportunity for CORB to put out some guidance for the narrative letters to give them some guidance. From a program director standpoint, we can increase our communication amongst each other as we're trying to evaluate these students, whether we should rank them or not for our our next year's class. And that MSPE, the, the medical schools, can step up. And this is where you can put the impact of the student at that institution of covid into that MSPE so it shows for each student the impact um, at that institution rather than feeling like they have put it in their personal statement because it would, you're right, it would be in everybody's personal statement how COVID-19 impacted them. The the MSPE would be a great place to put uh, the institutional impact of COVID about their way that they did their rotations, whether they could have completed emergency medicine rotation or not. That can all be explained at the medical school level. So at each level, we have the opportunity to really make this as great of an interview season as we can. Well, dare I play the optimist? This is just, uh, it's not, doesn't feel right. But, you know, what I'm hearing is the whole panel is really willing to be flexible. I think we all have students' best interest at heart. 
There may be opportunities to still do an away rotation, perhaps later in the summer or fall, but that doesn't happen. That's okay. If it does happen, that's okay. If it happens at some schools and not others, that's okay. And it's going to be really on us, the faculty, to help our colleagues do a little bit better home assessment and to help students distinguish themselves as we offer our own advice uh, during the season. Is that optimistic, Michelle? Yeah, I didn't even know who's talking there. I don't know. That doesn't... God, that sounded really rainbow. <laughs> no, but in all honesty, I, I do trust the system, and I do trust this EM residency program leadership community. The right thing's going to happen. The question is just what it is right now. So I have full faith it's going to be okay. Now, you're the optimist. That sounded much more authentic. There, there you go. All right. Well, let's close it there. And I'm going to thank my panelists and offer them the opportunity to plug their programs in our favorite part of the episode. And that's the tell me something I don't know about your program. And I'm going to say I've I've been a uh, fan of all three of you from a distance, but I don't know all that much about your program. So you've got some pretty free reign here. We'll start with Dr. Corey. Tell me something I don't know about the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Yeah, it's an honor to take care of the patient population we take care of. We have a really diverse patient population, and we take care of some of the sickest patients in the country. So I think I always highlight how sick our patients are, that we're in the stroke belt and the heart attacks and diabetes and all those things. They're, they're very prevalent here. So we have very sick patients. In addition to that, we offer a lot of early autonomy. You're getting a ton of critical care from very early on, but you've also got a lot of guidance. I would like to say that we have a particular emphasis on camaraderie here, and we really foster a supportive environment. It's been really tough the past few weeks not being able to see residents face-to-face, but we're doing like a lot of programs are doing, and we're Zooming with our residents and having social hours. We have a unique style of mentorship, and I think the most important part of our program is the relationships we, we have with one another and the mentorship. So we're really proud of what we have, and we hope that students take a look at us. Yeah, I I think students, when I think of the big major medical centers in the Southeast, certainly UAB is one of them. And I think when we watch CNN and MSNBC and we start to see the hotspots popping around the country, there's been numerous stories about UAB rising to the occasion with an early surge. So totally congruent with what you just heard. Students, check out the University of Alabama. And Dr. Platt, long and story program at Louisville. Tell me something we don't know about your program. That's right. We are one of the oldest programs in the nation. Um, And we are actually housed in one of the nation's oldest urban universities. So we do have a storied and prolific history and have produced generations of outstanding emergency physicians. And we can practice anywhere, anytime for anyone. We do pride ourselves on our resident autonomy. Our graduates really are in demand and are known to be practice ready for the day one. They lead, they advance emergency medicine, um, and they are sound practice critical scientific eye, and they really do. I just love my residents. They have this inner drive to make a difference in our patients um, and in our community, and as well as for the profession of emergency medicine as a whole. You know, I think we're expanding our number of programs in our specialty perhaps too much. It seems to be growing at a rapid pace, and it's nice to go back and recognize the programs that started it all, and yours is certainly one of them. So, So thank you to your faculty for that. Students, check out University of Louisville. And then we're going to move to one of the newer kids on the block, but at a old and well-respected university. Dr. DeConey, tell us something we don't know about Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Yeah, we consider ourselves in the adolescence of our program. So we are newer. We've graduated five classes. And 
you know, I tell our applicants and our, our residents, you know, you're going to get the training that you need regardless of where you go. That's what the ACGME is all about. So I tell people to find your people and find your place. Some of the things that make us unique is that given our location and the population we serve hap- happens to be the, the second oldest population in the country. Good trivia question there. But you will as a resident in our program, you'll practice the full breadth of emergency medicine in ways you might not elsewhere. You'll do you know, inner city critical care trauma all the way down to suburbia, to small town, to critical access, and even tele-emergency medicine or opportunities. So all of that in beautiful New England uh, at a level one tertiary academic medical center, it's a really bizarre thing to have that right here, but it's a unique place to practice academic medicine at a community hospital an amazing group of residents, a small program. We're six per year. So we're really intimate. We know everybody really, really well. And that has become one of our greatest strengths. Camaraderie, particularly at a time like this, can't be overstated. So a family community is really what you're going to get here. And we're a program that's committed to change. Every year we make changes that are largely rooted in resident feedback. It's their program. um, And we're highly responsive to that. So if you like nightlife to include stargazing and night skiing, this is the place to do it. Amazing quality right? of life. So beautiful here. there. It is I, beautiful. I, I've been there once in September to Hanover, and I like to think of it only in in my mind as it's always that way with the fall uh, foliage, and it's just such a beautiful place. There is still ice on the lakes. I see that's what I'm not putting in my imagery of your wonderful town, and you guys are the only shop in the area, and that makes for great emergency medicine training no matter where you go. So students, check out Dartmouth. Michelle, thank you for hosting this very special episode I think we learned a lot today, and I hope the students take away some solace from this episode. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alium Podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. Thanks for joining us.